Hello and welcome to Lessons with Dad. I am here today with two of my daughters, Ruthie and Sarah Jane. Hi. Hey. And we are continuing uh, in part three of intelligence and how to get it. This is going to be our third and final uh, part of this book, and we'll be wrapping it up before we continue in our uh, series, The Psychology of Excellence. So Ruthie, do you want to maybe summarize the first two episodes? What did what have we learned so far in intelligence and how to get it? Part one, what did we cover or learn? That intelligence can be changed. That's right. That was a huge finding. We went over in one. What, what was the second thing we learned there? Education can significantly increase intelligence. That's right. We saw that education can significantly increase or the lack of uh, education or school can decrease. And then lastly, we learned what? Increased IQ and academic achievement leads to better life outcomes. That's right. And that's life outcomes and increased IQ, increased uh, and higher academic achievement. You can uh, achieve higher status uh, jobs and higher income. And then in part two, what did we learn there? School makes us smarter. That's right. So we, in the first part, we really learned how lack of school and some natural things happened like either wars or when teachers weren't available, how the lack of schooling uh, decreased intelligence in people. Here we really looked at um, some studies on natural experiments, how school made you smarter. And we learned from a natural experiment from the arbitrary cutoff of September 15th that some schools, uh, and these were done in, in other multiple countries, that one year of school equals two years of age. So if the same person, uh, one born on September 15th, one born on September 16th, one goes to school, one doesn't by the arbitrary cutoff, one year of school makes you that much more intelligent, equivalent to two years of age. And then what else did we learn last time? We are smarter than our grandparents. That's right. We talked about how much smarter we are than our our grandparents, two generations, um, and how basically in every generation, uh, in the last several generations, intelligence has increased nine points for every 30-year generation. That's amazing. Nine points. That's more than a half a standard deviation um, increase in intelligence. And that's really driven by schoolwork and culture, uh, which is a just a tremendous thing. Then we covered some things about how you, how that happens in school. And what did we learn about school, Ruthie? Teachers matter. That's right. Teachers really matter. Uh, they really do. And our, and, you know, as parents and as and working with the schools, we can help find better ways to reward better teachers. And the last thing we covered. Tutors and five C's. That's right. The five C's. And we really, in fact, I learned a lot myself about how I can be a better tutor because he really talked about how so much learning is one-on-one -on -one and that uh, there are definitely things you can do to be a bad tutor. We covered that. And then the five C's of how to be a good tutor. And it's really uh, going to get me to be a better tutor as we go back to school this year, Ruthie, for you when we go over some things. So let's jump into some other things as we look across cultures. 
He spent a lot of time, uh, Dr. Nisbet, as he went through the book, looking at uh, multiple uh, different countries and how people learn. And he specifically looked at East Asians. And one of the questions is, Ruthie, you know, is do we think Asians, specifically East Asians, are smarter than Americans? Um, most people think that they are. That's right. A lot of people think that they are. And so let's look at some statistics. And this book was written in around 2009. So as of 2009, Asians made up 2% of the U.S. population. In 2008, Asian Americans won all five of the Westinghouse Science Fair Awards. 20% of students at Harvard are were Asian at that time. And 45% of students at Berkeley. So there's a researcher, Dr. Flynn, who did a lot of work looking at the East Asian communities and their intelligence. And he found, Ruthie, and this was surprising, that East Asians, their intelligence is really equivalent, maybe even slightly lower when you, when you baseline it to Americans in general. Um, and quite frankly, and I'll just make a note, uh, Dr. Nisbet goes through many different cultures and uh, different ethnic groups. And really, he said, essentially all ethnic groups, if you're looking at uh, African-Americans, Latinos, what, whatever group you're looking at, there are, we all essentially, on average, have about the same starting point. There's not the difference, the big difference comes from the home and the socioeconomic environment that you're in, because we looked at how much of an impact from a lower socioeconomic family to a higher one. I think that was about 12 points, almost a full standard deviation can be attributed to being in a lower socioeconomic. But on for a baseline IQ, what you're, you inherit, Ruthie and Sarah Jane, he went at great lengths. And there's a couple whole chapters on this to say about everybody's equal. So don't look down on any other ethnic group and say, oh, they're not as smart or they're smarter. No, we're all about the same baseline. So let's just assume as uh, IQ researcher Dr. Flynn looked at this, let's assume we're equal, right? But what is not in dispute, right? When you look at these things, what, regardless of where you start, is that Asian Americans and, and Asians in general, uh, East Asians uh, that aren't American, achieve at a level far in excess of what their measured IQ suggests that they would be likely to attain. So basically he's saying, Let's assume they're equal with Americans or Asian Americans with the general American population. The East Asian Americans, as well as the East Asians that, that live abroad, perform well above their IQ. And we're going to figure out why, why do you think that might be? Any ideas why that might be, Ruthie? Maybe they study differently. No, that's a good point. Differently. Sarah Jane, any, what, what are your thoughts? I'm not really sure. Maybe, yeah, maybe I agree with Ruthie. They study more, have yeah. different habits. That's right. Maybe it has something to do with their culture. We're going to find out a lot about that. Um, but Asian intellectual accomplishment um, is due more to sweat than gray matter, <laughs> right? So that's that means it's not the gray matter, not brain power. Um, sweat matters, right? It's it's effort that is getting them there. So. And IQ is not the point here. Something about Asian schools, and this goes to what you both just said, Ruthie and Sarah Jane, 
Um, something about Asian schools or motivation of Asian children differs greatly from American schools or American children's motivation. So let's just take one data point. Children in Japan, they go to school about 240 days a year. In the U.S., we go about 180 days. That's an extra 60 days a year spent in school. And we just learned one extra year of school is worth two years of age. And so they're going a significant amount more per year than U.S. students. So Flynn, Dr. Flynn, followed a group of Asian Americans until they were 36. So that's a long study, right? Through school and then well into their uh, professional careers. So here are a few of his findings. There's a large difference in original measured IQ, their baseline, where they started, and their measured IQ and ac academic excess. So they achieved far higher on measured tests and, and academic success than you would expect based on their originally measured IQ. Flynn also found that their overachievement relative to IQ on achievement tests and occupations in a wide variety of studies of East Asian uh, Americans. So they not only did better on standardized tests, the SAT, the ACT, they did better and got higher paying and higher status jobs than they would have expected. So again, he's confirming some of the things that we see and people um, sometimes characterize. So the overachievement of Asian Americans establishes that academic achievement can be a better predictor of ultim ultimate socioeconomic success than IQ. So Ruthie, do you know what that just what I just said there? What he's saying is academic achievement. So your baseline IQ that maybe when you were 10 years old, you would take. That's not the best um, predictor of where you're going to go in life, because guess what? We're all probably going to be about somewhat equal. What is a better predictor is how hard you work over the next 10, 15 years as you go to school and your academic success is a better predictor of your ultimate, how far you're going to, what kind of job you're going to get, what kind of income you're going to have and what you're going to do. And that's a better predictor, not your initial IQ, because we've just learned your IQ can change dramatically based on your socioeconomic, what, what kind of family you live in as well as the, the schooling that you get, right? So, and, and what he comments on is this phenomenon is not about Asian overachievement as much as it is American underachievement. We're not living up to our potential, Ruthie and Sarah Jane. We have great potential. And what he's saying is the Asians are capitalizing on that and maybe we're not. And I find that very, very interesting, don't you? Yes. Yes. They're not in their heads. <laughs> so Asian and Asian American achievement is not mysterious. It happens by working harder. Um, just here's a couple more data points. Japanese high school students in the 1989s uh, studied three and a half hours a day. Three and a half hours a day. I, I, I mean, you, you girls study a lot, but not three and a half hours a day. And that number is likely to be higher today. American high school students in general study an average of one and a half hours a day. So they're studying more than double what American students are. So why do Asian, Asian children work harder? And quite frankly, they don't need to read this book to know that intelligence and intellectual achievement are highly malleable, right? They don't, they don't need to read this book. They know it. 
They've learned it over thousands of years, girls. And, and it, some of this comes down to culture. Their culture has shown that through this, you can, you can achieve more and more success. In fact, Confucius set this straight 2,500 years ago. You know, Confucius is, was a famous Asian philosopher, right, Ruthie? And so what he said was he distinguished between two sources of ability, the one by nature, a gift from heaven or from God, right? So the one from nature and the one by dint of hard work. So I, I think that's a great way to put it. There are two sources of ability, the one what God gives you and then the one that you work hard to gain. So Asians today still believe that intellectual accomplishment is primarily a matter of what? Work ethic. Work ethic. That's what they believe is part of their culture. European Americans, right, in general, are more, more likely to believe what, girls? What do you think we Americans would typically believe? What, what, what do you think your academic achievement or your IQ is based on? What would people in America say? What do you think? What you're born with? Yeah. Maybe your genes, your innate ability. Um, so European Americans, like uh, people like us, right, believe it's mostly a matter of innate ability or what God gave you or having a good teacher. Asian Americans have an attitude that's right there in between. So we are, are dependent and our attitudes think, oh, it's on my ability. Kind of like what Ruthie said at the beginning of this, right? She doesn't, at the beginning of this whole book, she said, hey, I can't much affect it. It's what God gave me. We're finding out that's not true, but that's what almost all Americans think. Ruthie's right there with everybody else. But we're finding out it actually absolutely can. And there's a big difference, a big chasm, girls, between what Asians think, and, and we're talking specifically East Asians, and what most Americans think. And then Asian Americans are somewhere in between. And so why we see so many East Asians uh, Americans, East Asian Americans that do so well is because they're working harder and, and their culture supports it. Canadian researchers conducted a test and found that Canadians, this is interesting, tried harder if they did well on a test the first time. So they set up this, this uh, really cool little test and they, they said, hey, try this. If they did better, uh, they'd try harder the first time. The Japanese that they studied worked longer on the test if they failed the first time. So again, this is a cultural difference, right? So this study in Canada found the Canadians, and I can probably say Americans would be grouped in with that. If they did well on something, then they'll try harder when they, but if they failed, they didn't try as hard. The Japanese, East Asians did just the opposite. They worked harder if they failed. And so the important factor for Asians making the most of their natural intelligence is that their culture from their families demands it, right? They have a different, in the US, we have a very independent culture. It's all about me, my ability, this, and each, it's a very individualistic culture. East Asians are very much, uh, because of their, where, and, and he talks about this, I've listened to some of uh, Richard Nisbet's podcasts. He studied uh, the East Asian cultures. A lot of this comes from, their backgrounds that they were interdependent on one another. So it's not, you're not so independent. There's more inner relations uh, and, and there's pressure from society to conform and to work together because they were farming rural communities that 
it wasn't all about the independent one person. Everyone needed to work together for the success of the community. So achievement for East Asians is not an individual affair. It's a family affair. So when one achieves success, it's not success for the individual, it's success for the whole family. And that's a longer term goal. So there's not only that they're working harder, but then there's societal and family pressures that push this. And it's not just family. A lot of times you look at, oh, it's the it's the the family and the parents pushing. This is just their their whole culture and their society is based that way. And so um, I think that's just a really good example looking at the East Asian and the Asian Americans and their success primarily through hard work and then their culture that supports it and that difference in thinking that it's not individualistic, but it's actually uh, the group and that, that the East Asians also believe that it's through hard work that they can achieve something where we think it's in our innate ability. And that's going to be a huge determining factor when we go to our next book in Mindset, Girls. Mindset is huge to talk about this. So again, we'll talk more about that as we go, but you're going to see how all of these books relate together. So the next part we're going to go through, that kind of wraps up the content of the book we're going to cover. But at the end, Dr. Nisbet kind of goes through and says, all right, for parents, for, for kids, how can we raise our intelligence and yours, right? And he kind of goes through and gives a list of some different things that we can all do to raise our intelligence, kind of summarizes the whole book here. And I'll go through, he puts them in some different groups. So we'll go through and first he starts with the obvious. So first he says, talk to your children, use high level vocabulary, and include your child in adult conversations. Do you think that's important, Ruthie? How do you how would you rate us at doing that? Do we include you in conversations? Not really. You don't think we do when we're having parties and with groups of people and not if you're talking about like politics or something like that. No, that's true. I mean, you know, that's something we can probably do better at. I think we try to work hard when we have friends over and people we're around the kitchen table to have conversations, but something we can always get better at. Um, reading to your children. So, right, reading. So, talking with your children, don't dumb it down, use high level vocabulary, read to your children. I think uh, we do a good job of that. I think this podcast is a good example of how we do that. Uh, you know, encourage exploration of their environment for children. Uh, and this is this one I found interesting. Uh, teach your child how to categorize objects and events and how to make comparisons among them. That's something he talked about throughout the book that they that schools do well. That's different than something you'd get uh, just going outside into nature. That's part of uh, the categorization, the scientific method and analysis that you learn through schooling, that you can do that at home with your children to teach them how to categorize objects and events and make comparisons. Um, and encourage your child to analyze and evaluate interesting aspects of the world. The next is the physical, and he goes into the importance uh, and ties the physical effects of exercise on fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence tasks uh, increased um, a half a standard deviation across multiple studies uh, from exercising 30 minutes a day. And then he highlights that exercise, uh, cardio exercise is great, but cardio exercise combined 
with strength training is even better. It's strange, but it helps the brain. And we all, I think we all know intuitively good physical fitness is tied to good mental health and fitness as well. And so he's not saying go crazy. Don't, you don't need to go run a marathon, but 30 minutes of cardiovascular and strength training daily can have a marked impact on your intelligence. Um, self-control. That's another area. And it, it really goes through, I think we're all familiar with the marshmallow uh, experiments uh, and, and delayed gratification. So Ruthie, have you ever heard of the marshmallow experiments? No. So the marshmallow experiments, famous uh, psychological experiment on delaying gratification. And basically uh, you'd give, put a marshmallow or a cookie or some type of sweet in front of a child and say, hey, look, you can eat this one now or sit here and wait for five minutes and I'll give you, you'll get two in five minutes. And it measures uh, someone's ability to have self-control. And that there have been many studies that have shown that greater self-control leads to academic success and higher SAT scores. And so he quotes some of those studies. Um, the comment that's interesting, I think, for parents and for us is, there's not a lot that says, well, how do we get better self-control in our children? That's not easy to do. What he does say is modeling seems to be highly effective, right? Children watch their parents and others. So uh, discuss, like when we're talking with our children or having discussions, uh, talk about saving for retirement, right? Delaying the gratification of spending all your money to save for retirement or Hey, if I'm going to run a marathon and train, I'm not going to reward myself after every run. I'm going to delay my gratification until maybe I'll reward myself after I run a race. But talk about different ways on how and give our children examples of what we're doing to delay our gratification and then the, the rewards that you reap from doing that. So again, talking about it and, and demonstrating it more than talking is demonstrating uh, the delayed gratification and self-control. Uh, next, teach malleability and praise hard work, right? We just talked about the benefits and saw the huge achievements that the Asians get through hard work. And this really leads straight into our next book and Carol Dweck with Mindset. We want to be praising the hard work of our children and not their God-given talents or their just outright intelligence. Um, and, and that's just terribly important. So teach your children to work harder after failure, right? Just like we saw in some of those studies, teach our children when they fail, get up and work hard. Ruthie, really proud of you that after, when you were doing tryouts for tennis and just a quick note for all of our, uh, listeners, Ruthie just had tryouts for, as a sophomore for the, for the to make the varsity or JV teams. And during tryouts, she lost her first three matches. And when she came home that night, we were talking and she said, Hey dad, let's go out and hit. I want to practice some more. I'm like, that's great. <laughs> that's a perfect example of this, not for intelligence, but for a sport, but it's the same. When you have a failure, um, you didn't get the result you wanted. You didn't win those matches, but look, let's go out and let's try harder. Let's not just give up and say, Oh, I can't win or I can't learn this. You can learn it. There's nothing out there. You can become rocket scientists, brain surgeons. You pick the hardest, most difficult uh, 
careers y'all can do it. So again, it says, don't praise your children for being intelligent. Instead, praise hard work because hard work is under their control. So and the problem with praising intelligence is that it makes them focus only on trying to show how smart they are by work, working on tasks they do well and avoiding tasks that they're having trouble with, right? They don't want to fail when you're praising their intelligence as opposed to when you're praising their hard work. Um, when children are praised for intelligence, they resist accepting a challenge and doing things from which they can learn a lot. And this, and he goes through, and again, I, I mentioned almost every book we're going to go through quotes Carol Dweck and Mindset. So here he quotes uh, a clever experiment by psychologists Claudia Mueller and Carol Dweck that illustrates this point. So they were they had an experiment where children were given problems and then praised them for either being bright, for being really smart, or being praised for hard working. Then offered the children an opportunity to work on another set of problems, either easy ones or hard problems that would challenge them. And what's interesting, 66% of the children that were praised for their intelligence chose which ones do you think? That's right. The 66% that were praised for how smart they were, they chose the easy ones so they could reinforce that they were smart. Over 90% of the children praised for hard work chose, what do you think, Ruthie? The hard questions. That's exactly right. The children that were praised for hard work said, oh, these are harder. I might learn from something, something from it. They chose the hard ones. Drastic difference. The, and this is what we're going to learn in the book Mindset, the words we use and what we think we're doing to praise our children. There's often better ways to do it. And it's amazing. You might think, oh, I'm giving positive reinforcement to my children. We may be putting them in a fixed mindset without even knowing it. And so we want to praise the hard work, uh, not that they're bright or smart or intelligent. Uh, and in the moral of the story, praise effort, not smarts. And so we're just coming up to the end here. I think, um, again, we'll, we'll reiterate what was in part two, but for schools, he highlights to the extent you can try to get your children into classrooms with the best teachers, find the best teachers at your school, get your kids in those students, especially he says, and I found this very interesting for the first grade, the first grade was critical. He said, in overall education and learning, and then avoid rookie teachers at all costs, just their first year of teaching. So as we, as we wrap up here, Ruthie, I want to get the top takeaways from this book that I want you girls and Sarah Jane, everyone to take away from this. So Ruthie, can your intelligence, now that we've gone through this, can your intelligence be modified? Yes. Yes. Not only yes, can it be modified a lot? Mm -hmm. There is. How can it be modified? How can you modify your intelligence? School, hard work, and environment. That's right. All of those things, and a tremendous amount through hard work in school. With the internet now, you can do anything. And so, Ruthie, with that being the case, who is in charge of your intelligence? Yourself. That's absolutely right. There is no one else in charge of your intelligence. You have all kinds of resources, girls, more than anyone has ever had in the world. You have the internet, 
You have online learning. You can take college courses through Coursera at any time. Anything in the world you want to learn, you can learn on YouTube and these things. So Ruthie, I want you to say that again. Who is in charge of your intelligence? You. You meaning you, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning me. Say it again. Yourself. Yourself. You're in charge of your own intelligence. How smart can you become? What do you think? As smart as you want to. <laughs> That's right. As smart as you want to be, girls. Anything you want to do, you can do it. Work harder. Learn online. Do you know if for people that are listening, if you don't access have access to great teachers, there are great teachers online. Go to places like Coursera. Go to um, oh Linda.com, which is now part of. Uh, another thing but there are some great places to learn now so no youtube so much out there so girls this has just been a great book um and and really sets up our entire series we're going to go into the book mindset next but i think this is such an important topic and ruthie you hit it we are all responsible learning doesn't stop when you get done with school girls you're going to learn for the rest of your lives but each of us is responsible for our own learning and you can learn as much as you want in life. All right. Well, Ruthie, what'd you think of the first book? Did you enjoy that? Um, yeah, I liked how it talked about the tutors and the teachers. Yeah, it is. And teachers make such a big difference. The tutors as well. Well, listen, we're going to wrap it up for today for this uh, lesson. Sarah Jane, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on a the podcast. I definitely learned a lot in this episode. Great. Well, everybody, uh, we'll look forward to next time and we'll start our next book, Mindset, in our next episode.